Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Amitaj Parnandam, who is a professor of finance at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan and the chair of the finance area. His research focuses on corporate finance, banking, and financial crisis. He has closely studied topics such as the effects of banking crises on the real economy, the role played by securitization during the subprime mortgage crisis, and the economics of government bailout of the financial sector. Welcome, Amitaj. Thanks a lot, Gail, for having me here, and I'm excited to talk to you about these issues. Yeah, so I want to go back uh, to one of your older papers. Um, you wrote this in 2008 uh, during the during the last uh, financial shock, yeah. uh, and it's entitled "Originate to Distribute Model and the Subprime Mortgage Crisis." Uh, in which you say the originate to distribute OTD model of lending, where the originator of a loan sells it to various third parties, was a popular uh, method of mortgage lending before the onset of the subprime mortgage crisis. And you show that banks with high involvement in this process, this OTD marketing uh, during the pre-crisis period, originated excessively poor quality mortgages. Mm -hmm. So could you explain... um, you know, the OTD model a little bit and why the banks find it, uh, find it attractive, why it results in higher risk mortgages, uh, perhaps lower quality origination, and, yeah. and perhaps, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the portfolio, mm-hmm. uh, how the portfolio actually perform. Absolutely. And uh, let, let me start with uh, what, uh, what is not an OTD model of lending, and, and then I'll talk about what OTD is. Yeah. So the traditional mortgage lending is what we call you the originate to hold model of lending, mm-hmm. where a bank will give a loan to a homeowner, and that loan will sit on bank's balance sheet till the time it gets repaid or refinanced. Right? Yeah. And so that's been the model of lending that we are we are traditionally familiar with. 
And the, the key difference between this traditional lending model and the OTD model, the originator distribute as the name implies, is the bank that makes the loan, the originating bank, does not hold on to that loan. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the loan, uh, uh, let's say, is originated by a local bank here in Ann Arbor, where I'm talking from. But after originating the loan, that may get sold to investors on the Wall Street through some complex packaging and securitization transaction. Yeah. But the bottom line is that risk uh, is not sitting on the balance sheet of the bank that made the loan. Mm -hmm. And that's your OTD model of lending. Uh, the same thing as securitization. So we are talking about the same thing here. So when, the, when you say the risk is not sitting in the bank's balance sheet, when they distribute that loan mm -hmm. to a third party, mm -hmm. um, is that that third party a pure sort of intermediation party? or So, so where does that risk sit, I guess? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a good question. So let's, let's look at uh, a sort of a concrete example to, yeah. to, to give you a flavor of where, what, what happens. So typically what will happen is the, the originating bank has given $100 of loan to a homeowner. Yeah. And then uh, there's a lending contract. There's a mortgage contract now. Mm -hmm. And that will be sold to what I'll call a sponsor. And think of them as a large Wall Street bank. So, uh, so this could be Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, and sometimes, uh, at least uh, during 2008 and 2009, there were also independent mortgage companies such as Fremont Mortgage and so on. Yeah. Right? So now what this bank is doing, takes the mortgage contract and sells it to this sponsor. Mm -hmm. And now the homeowner effectively uh, owes uh, the payments to this uh, sponsor. What this sponsor will do, the sponsor will buy mortgages like this from uh, hundreds and thousands of uh, 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 um, um, borrowers. Yes. So, so now uh, it, it will be that now the sponsor is essentially collecting all these mortgages in a pool. Right. So now think about this, that the sponsor will end up getting, creating a pool where it's worth $100 million in the principal amount. Mm -hmm. And then the next step is that this against this $100 million, where these homeowners are going to be making payments, the sponsor will create securities. Yeah. And there will be different classes or different tranche of these securities. Mm -hmm. So there will be a senior class, there will be a, a mezzanine class, there will be a junior class. Okay. Yeah. And those securities now get sold uh, in the financial markets. So, 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 so I mean, just for my own understanding. So, in this, you're describing the the, the sponsor here is the is the third party. The sponsor so far is the third party. Third party. Indeed. So, okay. but once the these securities have been sold, yeah, the risk is now sitting with these uh, these investors. With these investors, so. The sponsor buys the so buys the mortgages from various originators, uh, make a pool of those uh, those la those mortgages, right? And then essentially take that portfolio and create securities out of those portfolio, sell it to investors. So now the bank is out of the picture. Yes. Uh, the investors hold the risk, right? Uh, and the sponsor becomes sort of a channel. 
uh, of that west, right? Distributed, just like yeah. in your distribution chain, yeah. you have the manufacturer, and by the time it gets to the retail, there are two, three intermediaries in between. Yeah, it's the exact same process. Right. So somebody is creating mortgages, and then there are some intermediaries that like sponsors. And but effectively, what will happen? What happens at the end of the day? That the homeowner gets the money from these security investors. Yeah. All right. So now let's go back to your question. Yeah. So where is the risk sitting? Now the risk is sitting with these uh, these bond investors. Right. And now think about it. Unlike your traditional model, these investors, they don't even know who the ultimate borrower is. Right, right. In this whole chain, the, as compared to the traditional model where a bank gave a loan to me to buy a house, then the bank is doing the entire screening, yeah. uh, due diligence on me, my credit score, my job, and how likely I am to pay back or not pay back. And the bank knows that the consequences of a bad decision mm -hmm. that they may be making at the time of lending will be fully borne by them. So in this process, um, when the bank originates the loan, uh, what, how are they getting paid? What, how much? What, so they're almost getting a fee for that origination? Absolutely. So, so, uh, so let, let's just take this question to at a little bit of a, yeah. at a broader level that what is it in for the bank uh, in this model, right? right? As you clearly um, uh, pointed out, that the bank is not going to be earning interest here. The interest will be passed on to those bond investors. Right. But the banks end up getting uh, uh, fees, uh, fee income yeah. for originating these loans. Right. Okay? So now I'll tell you what is good about this model before yeah. I talk about what's bad about this. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. What's good about this model is that, look, if you have an, an Arbor Bank Mm -hmm. It has a limited capacity, limited capital, limited liquidity to meet the lending needs of all borrowers in Ann Arbor. Mm -hmm. And in this model, you are opening up the source of funds to global investors. Right. Effectively, a borrower in Ann Arbor ends up getting money from an investor, say, in, from in, in London or Hong Kong or Mumbai. Mm -hmm. Effectively, right? The risk gets distributed yeah so there's a better risk sharing that happens because of this right and when you have better risk sharing the cost of funds as well as the amount of funds that you can get they both come down right so this is a good model in that sense that's the plus side yeah right? and that's why what you'll see the mortgage rate will come down because uh, uh because investors are diversifying and the risk is getting nicely distributed the flip side is what my paper is about is that what happens is the, the, there is a disconnect in this model between who creates risk, originates risk, the originating bank, and who bears this risk, the bond investor. Right. And right. when there, there is a disconnect, then now look at the incentives of these originating bank. They're essentially making money off the origination fees. It's a, it's a volume-based business. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You hit the nail on its head, yeah. It becomes a volume-based business. Yeah. And once you know that more and more of lending I do, I get more fee-based income, which in itself is very attractive in the banking business. Right. Right. 
And why do I say that? Because fee-based income does not consume your capital. Yeah. So you can be a very small bank, but all that you're doing is originating and distributing, originating and distributing. So for $1 of capital, you can do many more times of OTD lending compared to the traditional lending. Right, right. And so the, the trouble we get into in 2008, one of the troubles is that um, neither the sponsors nor the investors of that security, uh, I'm just making a statement, you can correct me, uh, uh, really had, seems like really had a very good understanding of the risk that they're taking, mm -hmm. especially the tail risk um, that they're taking. And the, and the pool had, I would imagine, a highly diverse set of uh, mortgages with you know very, very different types of risk, right? Um, and so what, was that the problem that we ran into, that when there was a discontinuity, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there was very high levels of um, default and, and that whole scheme essentially failed? Uh, I'd say 80% correct. And there's one thing that I'd like to uh, modify in your estate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, so indeed, uh, there was a little bit of uh, uh, misunderstanding or lack of uh, uh, full uh, uh, understanding of the risk that these investors were taking. Yeah. And that could come from simply the fact that, hey, uh, uh, people have talked about extrapolation bias in the sense that some investors, if they believe that house prices never go down, mm -hmm. if they're going up, because these loans were fundamentally backed by the houses. Yeah. So, 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 so in 2003, four, five, six, we all remember that house prices across the country, across the globe. In fact, they were going up and up and up. And if you extrapolate that a little bit too far in the future, mm -hmm. that, yeah, I'm investing in uh, mortgage-backed security and they're essentially backed by these houses and house value, they're not going to fall by 30% or, 20, uh, or 40%. Mm -hmm. Then you will make a mistake in estimating, estimating the true risk. Yeah. So that was one, but but at the same time, uh, there were there were bigger issues, and that relates to the incentives and the information of these parties. Mm -hmm. The originating bank had all the incentive, as we just talked about, to increase volume. Yeah, and they were also most informed about the true quality of the borrower. Right. And as these loans got passed into the securitization chain, then farther you were from the borrower, less informed you were about the risk of that borrower, mm -hmm. right? Because now, effectively, uh, you just don't know who this guy was. So you had a lot of loans like no-doc loans or low-documentation loans, yeah. right? So there, there was this incentive issue that did the originating bank turn a blind eye to risks that they would not have taken had they been required to hold those loans on their balance sheet. Right. So that's in, the, in that sense, so, so there was, and they, they complement each other, but they're slightly different. One is that, look, everybody missed the boat and they made a mistake in calculating the true risk. But the second one is a little bit more uh, 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 dangerous for us as an economic system, yeah. where some people kind of knew that, look, this guy has, uh, uh, we had no ninja loans, right? No income, no asset, no job loan. Right? Right. So uh, traditionally, these loans were not being made. 
But now with this incentive problem that, look, I make this loan and it will be someone else's headache, these loans were made. Yeah. So and both they 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 work with each other. And I I did say that I'll, I'll slightly correct one statement that uh, one aspect of the statement you made. Yeah, and which is important. That look, what you said is that well, they were all diverse kind of loans, mm-hmm. and this is exactly how it should be for deriving the maximum benefit of diversification. Yeah, yeah. One of the ideas of pooling is that look, I will take a lot of loans, and they're not. Uh, um, and, and, and there's the benefit of diversification. They're not fully correlated with each other and so on. So some loans will do well, some loans will not do that great, but effectively I'll have some benefit right. from pooling those assets. Yeah, I, I think I used the wrong. So what I meant by diverse loans is that from a quality perspective, they were very different. So when you securitize those, mm-hmm. if your assumption going in yes. is that they're generally, generally the same, then you're probably making a mistake, right? Absolutely, and, yeah. and indeed. So the only, only, only point that I add to that, and indeed, we, uh, we are on the same page here. The only thing that I'll add to is that the assumptions were made about uh, the correlation structure of these loans. Mm-hmm. Uh, another way of saying the assumptions were made about how much diversification you are getting from these loans. And after the crisis, we realized that uh, the, the, the historically there was this assumption that the northeast market housing market will be different than uh, markets in texas than uh, markets in uh, illinois and michigan and so on yeah but around that time the entire global mortgage market and certainly in our country in the us that you had uh, a shock that was felt across all the 50 states yeah right so then you had a scenario where you had a bad shock that hit everyone and it was not a regional or local uh, 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 risk or local crisis. It was systematic, yeah. yeah. Exactly. It was more systematic. And then you lost that benefit that you thought you would have by pulling a loan from Michigan with a loan from uh, uh, from New York and a loan from Texas. Right, right. And, all at the same time. Yeah, so that issue led to a variety of, uh, variety of problems um, after that. But before we get into it, uh, I want to uh, get into another paper you have. So it's entitled Judging Banks' Risk by the Profits They Report. Mm-hmm. Now, the banks were not the issue in the, in the scenario that we just went through. The sponsor um, was, was, the, was the issue. Uh, but more generally, you're looking at here, uh, you say in competitive capital markets, portfolios of risky debt claims have high systematic risk exposure in bad times if they offer a high yield in good times, in anticipation of a bad time, right? So we apply this idea to measure uh, bank risk. So rather than trying to directly measure asset risk on the balance sheet, you're looking at the yields that they're deriving uh, from that portfolio and use that as a proxy to, to, to look at what the systematic risk exposure is. Absolutely. And uh, Gil, I'd like to um, uh, take a step back here before yeah. I get to the details of this paper. Uh, and to, to, to talk about the philosophy behind banking regulation that yeah. uh, regulators around the world uh, uh, typically have. And the philosophy, and it goes back to at least Basel I in the 1980s, but even before that, the philosophy of our regulation is a model-based philosophy. Mm. That is, you want to figure out how risky is this bank, and somebody comes up with a model. Yeah. And what is the model? You say, hey, give this bank has this kind of asset and this kind of uh, risk exposure. So I'll somehow 
translate what the bank does right. to a risk number. So all these regulations like risk-weighted capital or value at risk and a bunch of other stuff, credit risk regulation, everywhere the essence is a model-based regulation. And none of them have any, any, any market feedback, I would imagine, right? And it is, some of them, um, yeah. but broadly you're right, but some of them do have market-based. Uh, initially, it all started with, and, and that's a host of another topic, yeah. uh, the market versus book-based, and, and, and time permitting, I might touch upon that. Um, but, but the bigger issue here is that there is always this uh, cat-and-mouse game between the regulators and the banks. So you come up with uh, a model, and the, the, the regulated institutions figure out how to game the model. Yeah, right. And then the response has been the, that we'll create a more complex model. Mm. Because look, the previous models missed out. For example, the, sometime around 1990s, there was this discussion that, well, all the regulations we have in Basel one, they're all about lending risk and all, we are missing the market risk. We're missing interest rate risk or the other market risk. So they, they changed uh, uh, and, and the, the regulation and said, look, we should compute the trading risk of a bank using a value at risk model and yeah. so on. So, the, 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 so, so where I'm going with this is that every time you come up with a model, the model fails because somebody games it. And the next version of the model is more complex that is solving the previous problem. <laughs> yeah. The question for us is a hard one, that how do you solve the next problem? Right. And what you'll see, and where this, this paper, which, uh, which I'm very excited about, is it's, it's, it's about simplicity. Yeah. And what we are saying here is that, look, a more complex model perhaps may not be the solution because it gives more degrees of freedom mm -hmm. to manipulate the model. Because there are more inputs needed, more assumptions needed, more information needed to set up a more complex model. So rather than going about going going after the mapping of what the banks do to a risk number, let's attack the core of the problem, mm -hmm. which is that of the incentives to make too much money in good times. Mm. That is, no matter where you look at a banking crisis whether you look at the SNL crisis here in the US, you look at the subprime mortgage crisis, you look at the European financial crisis, you look at Great Depression. Yeah. The trigger of what led to the crisis is often different, often new. Hmm. But there's one thing that has remained constant, which is somebody was benefiting a lot by hiding risk. Right. Somebody was making a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So uh, we, a lot, lot of money in good times. A lot of money in good times, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So this paper essentially says that, so forget about all this complex model, just look at who is making a lot of money mm -hmm. in good times. And this is rooted in the theory of finance. That is, you make a lot of money, uh, a big chunk of that comes from risk-taking, risk-return trade-off. That is, riskier bonds will give you a lot of return, a lot of promised coupon payment in good times. Sure. In good time, if you buy a B-rated bond compared to a triple-rated bond, you'll make a lot of money. Yeah. Right? But then that is a compensation for the risk that the B-rated bond is more likely to default in bad times than a triple-rated bond. Mm -hmm. 
So we applied that idea to banks. And of course, it requires some work, some adoption. But the essence of the idea is the same, that banks that are making a lot of money in good times are doing that in a large part by taking uh, a lot of risk. And, and especially if those profits get paid out as CEO compensation and dividends, yeah. right? then what you're seeing is in good times, you take a lot of risk, you make a whole lot of money, that money gets paid out, so it does not stay within the bank. And in the bad time, if there is a possibility of a government bailout, which happens again and again, then there is always this incentive of taking a lot of risk to profit at the expense of taxpayers. Right. So, so in this paper, so you're saying that rather than having very complex models uh, to, to measure risk, let's look at what the portfolios are, portfolios are yielding in, in normal times, and that's a good proxy for the risk of the portfolio. And then the issue obviously is, um, you know, what are the incentives for the bank to take high risk? And, uh, you know, your ne next paper is, is getting into that. So, you know, if the managers of the, of the bank uh, have some sort of a backstop uh, for the bad times, they can keep pumping risk into the portfolio during good times and when when a discontinuity happens, they can throw their arms up in the air and go to go to Washington mm -hmm. uh, to get the backstop, right? So that that yeah. is the behavior that uh, that we allowed in two thousand eight, and uh, you know, beginning to allow again uh, in the in the in the coming discontinuity as well. So your your third paper here, um, again, looking back into two thousand eight to see if we can learn something from it, uh, and it's entitled "Did Banks Pay a Fair Return to Taxpayers?" on that TARD program, so Troubled Asset Relief Program. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't quite remember what the, what the, the total number was, but it was a big program, program, billions of dollars. Hundreds of billions of dollars, yes. Hundreds of billions of dollars uh, given as a bailout uh, for banks mm -hmm. uh, on the premise that if they fail, the whole economy uh, goes, to, uh, goes to hell. And uh, and so uh, and so you got it looking at here. So the the thought program had some sort of return coming back to uh, back to shareholders. So there was an original contract um, in the thought program, and and then when when things looked bad, they renegotiated that. So you were looking at what exactly did the taxpayers get paid back mm -hmm. from the bank, right? On yes. the on the backstop that we provided. Absolutely. And let's just uh, just refresh our memories here a little bit. Yeah. That this we are talking about uh, uh, September, October of 2008. Lehman Brothers had just failed. Yeah. And indeed, uh, indeed, that, that was a time when uh, there was some support that was needed. Uh, otherwise, the financial markets were collapsing. And with that, the real economy would have collapsed. And the mortgage market was under tremendous stress. Mm. So. The issue, and we, this, this is something that we confront all the time, that is when the banking sector or the financial sector, broadly speaking, gets into stress, there's this concern that, look, it will have devastating consequences for the rest of the economy if we do not bail them out. <laughs> yeah. And there's some merit to that. But the fundamental question that we have uh, to sort out as uh, collectively in the economy and in society is not 
so much of disagreement about helping them out in bad times as what do we get paid back in good times? Mm -hmm. That is, there's no conflict. And sometimes the question gets phrased as a false choice. Either you bail them out or you get taxpayer get taxpayers get hammered. No, you can do both. That is by proper security design. Yeah. That is what happened in 2008 and 9. Let's say that we had to pump $200 billion as preferred equity in these banks. What this is what this is a program that we are looking at in, in, in my paper. Yeah. So let's say that was needed. You wanted to give them $200 billion so that banks don't fail and then, then your economy stays uh, on track. But what happened subsequently, when the economy recovered, taxpayers yeah. did not earn enough profits. The share of that recovery was not fairly shared with the taxpayers. And there are mechanisms to do that. That yeah. is, you can attach warrants to right. mail out money so that in the good times when the bank's share price goes up, the profits are shared a little bit more fairly between both the shareholders and managers of the bank and the taxpayers on the other hand. Yeah, my cynical view, though, <laughs> Amitash, is that um, when, you know, those contracts can be designed properly, uh, but given everything that we have seen uh, in the financial sector, I have no trust that they will figure something else out when, when things don't work out. So if you want to take the incentive of, you know, taking risk uh, without really pricing the risk, without really, um, really, really looking at it on the premise that we will do something, you know, uh, with the taxpayer money um, in the future, I think that behavior, there is a behavior issue there. Absolutely. That, that I don't know if it's easy to correct through contracting. Absolutely. But, uh, but Gil, what you just say, the word that you use, trust, that is a fundamental problem that, yeah. that bothers me about this, this, this whole structure. That is, if people lose trust in our economic system, yeah. the cost of that is immense. Right? right, because and you have seen that in the last 10, 10, 15 years for sure after subprime mortgage crisis in our country and across the globe, where people have become cynical about the banking sector, people become cynical about uh, the whole role of uh, uh, bailout in, in, in terms of who benefits and so on. And if that happens, then it has uh, uh, long-term consequences for faith in our capitalistic society and and and, and many other issues. So. But, but let me just uh, uh, say this, yeah. that I agree with you and I, I, I share your cynicism that, look, you cannot solve these problems through contracts, yeah. but I will have a little bit of a, I'll add a little bit more to that, that yeah. we, cannot, we cannot solve these problems by talking about them during bad times. Yes. That's right. We have to talk about this <clears throat> during good times. Yeah. Like <clears throat> this paper that, that, uh, that you're talking about, judging bank risk by the profits they report, we had written that paper about two years ago. Mm -hmm. And at that time, the pushback will be, well, we are making a lot of profits and uh, how can you just... Uh, because we are good. We are good, exactly. <laughs> so we have seen this movie played again and again and again. And collectively, what we need to do, and I understand that this is very behavioral, 
uh, behavioral in the sense that in good times, who wants to talk about a boring topic on banks risk and model based regulation and all that. Mm-hmm. Right? And, 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 but, but the fundamental uh, uh, thinking and, uh, uh, that, that we have to have is that when times are good, there are some simple solutions to this problem. Making sure that banks are keeping their profits inside the bank rather than paying it out completely. Because that's the buffer, that's the cushion that we need in bad times. If banks have enough capital on their own balance sheet, they'll not be coming to taxpayers. Yeah, yeah. So just to conclude on this paper, um, so, uh, you know, the, the, the TAR program in 2008 um, you are you are showing that exposed taxpayers got much much lower return mm-hmm. than a private investor, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And the key point, the motivation is that look, you often hear bankers and a lot of people say that look, tarp money we paid back every penny of it. Yeah. That and that is uh, uh, correct that they did pay back the money, but that misses the point of a fundamental thing in finance, that of risk return trade off. Mm-hmm. That is, a fair return is not the return that I gave you $10 and you returned 11 to me. Mm-hmm. That's a good starting point. But what is fundamental in finance is that if I gave you $10 in a very bad state of the world, yeah. is in 2008, right. and you're returning 11 when everything is great in 2013 or 14, right. yeah. it's not the same $10. You did not compensate me for the state of the world and you did not compensate me for the risk that I took by giving you $10 in bad state of the world. Yeah, and make matters worse. Uh, By doing that, we have conditioned the financial sector to to expect that in the future as well. Absolutely. And that's the moral hazard of belief about future uh, bailouts. And that creates all sort of uh, perverse incentives. But to conclude that paper, yeah, that's the point. So what we are saying is that a right benchmark, whether banks really paid fair return or not, is by looking at what were the returns for that kind of investments in private markets. Right. And the private markets earned way more than the return that we uh, ended up getting as taxpayer from these banks. So the conclusion is that, yes, banks uh, did return our money back, but they did not share in the upside gains that they got which was shared with other market participants. Right. And to, you know, uh, without luck, we have history repeating again uh, in 2020. Yeah. And you have uh, you have a couple of uh, articles around this. So, for example, uh, one of them, uh, you say JP Morgan Chase must suspend all its payouts. And, and essentially, mm-hmm. this is a situation where the bank is continuing with its dividend payout. Right. Uh, even though, you know, it already knows that it's holding on to a lending portfolio that is not going to perform. Right. Uh, and it, it seems like it is it hasn't learned a lot. Oh, well, maybe it has learned more than what tax, <laughs> taxpayers actually <laughs> actually try to teach. Uh, they learned good uh, from 2008 and just anticipating what's going to happen. Yeah, indeed. I mean, look, the point is that there are benefits of dividend payout. Of course, uh, you, you, in a well-functioning uh, capital markets, you want investors to get their return back. But the worry is that at a time like this, when you and I know that we are waiting for a tsunami of defaults um, uh, to hit us. Yeah. In fact, if you look at banks' quarterly earnings report, they are all already talking about taking a 
um, uh, big uh, uh, loan loss provisioning in their uh, uh, income statements and so on. So they are getting ready. Mm. So the point is that when you know that you're going to be under stress and you know that there's going to be a lot of uncertainty around this stress, that right now nobody knows how bad is going to be this bad. All we know that it's going to be bad. Right. So when you're, when you're unsure about how bad is going to be this bad, you keep more uh, uh, dry powder with you in the right. sense that you keep more capital inside the bank. Yeah. So that in expectation, the possibility that the taxpayers have to intervene goes down. And it's in that sense that I'm saying that if you look at the empirical evidence from across the world, uh, uh, the, the right policy here will be to uh, stop these dividends. Yeah, and, and that's what you teach in business schools, I think, right? So that internally uh, generated cash is probably the, the least cost thing Absolutely. to handle. <laughs> hang Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I didn't want to go into the technical details of that, but I might as well, since you got me there, <laughs> yeah. is that, uh, that indeed it's what we call this information, informationally insensitive way of raising capital. Yeah. That is, whenever a company goes and raises a dollar of capital from the outside market, there is a little bit of a discount that the outsiders will give because they're not sure about the information that the company has. Right. But keeping a dollar of your cash inside the company, yeah. has no information discount. So indeed, that is a very efficient form of raising capital, and that is keeping capital inside the firm. Yeah, so, so what you're saying here is that, you know, no change in the capital structure, no change in the dividend policy. They have temporarily sort of, uh, to save face, uh, has stopped the repurchase program. Uh, but essentially, this looks like um, just waiting for the tsunami to happen and then uh, look for that backstop. Uh, and so if that's the case, um, you know, uh, financial institutions uh, maybe learned a lot from 2008 so that they can repeat the same uh, with, uh, with U.S. taxpayers. And this is not just financial institutions. You have another, uh, another article around an operating company, right? Uh, this is about uh, Boeing. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's sort of the same problem, right? Absolutely. Now, uh, and yeah, so it's not just financial institutions. Uh, financial institutions uh, they are often talked about because uh, indeed, uh, empirically, they uh, receive more of these bailouts. Uh, but uh, an important company like Boeing, you have to worry about the same thing, uh, that, that they get into distress and we collectively help them out, which is fine. Yeah. But, but which is fine at some level as long as we as taxpayers get compensated. Yes. And in, in, in my research and my broad thinking uh, on these issues, that's the conclusion that I have kind of walked away with at, at, at this time, that, that, look, we have to help um, the institutions because the alternative is even worse. So there is merit in the, the argument that you don't want to let a company like Boeing fail. I see that. I get that. But, but the point is that, sure, if I help you, what do I get as tax, taxpayer in return? And that's where we have a problem. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, so, you know, sort of a principal agent problem here too. The principles of taxpayers are distributed. They don't really have, uh, have the power to negotiate. The agents they put into this process to negotiate on their behalf, mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they, they may have incentives that are not really aligned with the, with the taxpayers. Um, and, and, you know, that, 
Yeah. Absolutely. Let me expand on that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, because this is some, a very important point that you raised, that whenever the principles are distributed, yeah. like taxpayers, like um, um, they're, they're small and they're all over the place, we hire our... Uh, um, um, uh, uh, negotiator. <laughs> negotiators, exactly. That's yeah. what I'm looking for. Yeah. Then a negotiator will work on our behalf only if he or she is uh, 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 either a good agent yeah. uh, and they'll say that, look, I'll just do the right thing for my taxpayers mm-hmm. and or they have the incentives to do the right things. Yeah. And the incentives to do the right things will come either from uh, uh, financial incentive or reputational incentive. Right. And often in this debate, what happens that we have uh, uh, our uh, uh, our elections and we have our uh, uh, representatives, they change and some of them uh, might have short-term incentives. Yeah. And if you have short-term incentives, then the reputation channel uh, might not work uh, that, that strongly as one would uh, want it to. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so it does get uh, pretty complicated uh, very soon. Yeah, I, I don't know what you know. What do you think about this? So, given that we are going through this crisis uh, more frequently than, than otherwise, uh, maybe there has to be a position that you know, just like you elect um, elect the Congress, uh, maybe there are you know few people that you are electing. Uh, to uh, to actually handle a crisis situation where you can you can assure that you know the incentives are aligned with the taxpayers. Now that's a, that's a good idea. That's an, uh, a fantastic idea. And in fact, there is a little bit of uh, uh, progress on that front when you talk about uh, after the financial crisis, uh, some provisions of Dodd Frank uh, uh, got to that point. Yeah. There was some attempt of uh, on making sure that there is a living will for every bank that what so some some structure behind mm-hmm. how how you you'll try to to uh, either restructure these firms or renegotiate these contracts. Uh, this means a little bit of progress, but much to much much uh, more work need to be done there. Yeah, that goes to your suggestion, which is uh, what you're saying is that let's have a structure. Um, in good times. Let's yeah. have the rules set in good mm-hmm. times. Um, not in anticipation of the good times uh, going going perpetually, but in anticipation of a bad time coming. Uh, and yeah. don't change those rules when bad t- bad times happen, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. In, for example, in, in, in very tangible terms, in good times, make sure they're building up a lot of capital. Yeah. Now, there have been some attempts in the last uh, 10, 10, 10, 12 years on, you must, must have heard about uh, counter-cyclical capital buffer and things like that, that, yeah. hey, uh, build up your capital in good times. Uh, uh, there, there should be some, some notion of uh, understanding excessive risk-taking in good times. Yeah. Yeah. That is, if somebody is making a lot of profits, let's have a little bit more uh, uh, careful look at those guys because most of the big, and by no means I'm suggesting that profit making is bad. Yeah, absolutely not. But profit making has uh, uh, often two sources. One is what we call you generate um, uh, alpha, or in the sense that it's, it's your skill, it's the yeah. hard earned profit, and then there is a lazy profit, which is simply risk taking profit. Right. 
So when in good times you see profits are very high for some trading desk or some company, yeah, it yeah. is upon us to investigate that what was the source of that profit. Right. Yeah. So so I, I don't know this, uh, Amitesh. I don't know how they account for this. So there is no concept of sort of risk adjusted excess returns or alpha reporting in the banking arena. The there is uh, the the whole idea behind risk weighted capital requirements and so on goes towards that. Yeah, there is the 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 idea, but it's but so so to answer your question, yes, there is some, mm. but but it needs to be uh, uh, right front and center in terms of banking regulation, which which is not the case right now. And it has to be transparent and systematic. You cannot you know kind of fool around with it, right? I mean. Uh, it also depends on how you compute the risk of your portfolio. So there has to be a set of rules that mm-hmm. are consistent and systematic. Otherwise, it won't work, I think. Absolutely. And, and assessing the risk is tough to begin with in the best of times. Yeah. So, so, you're, so you have to live with a little bit of ambiguity and a little bit of uh, uh, lack of clarity. But we can make the system better by attacking the incentives. So that it goes back to that issue yeah. of uh, the crisis every time what create the crisis is the trigger is always a different uh, a different one but but the motives uh, almost always remain the same yeah so in conclusion let me ask you to speculate um what's your best uh best guess uh as to what's going to happen next 18 months are we going to see something similar to 2008 or, or something different uh, look, in terms of uh, the banking sector, right now, banks are in a much better shape yeah. compared to 2008. Yeah. So, so one way to see that is that, look, a lot of uh, things that we learned from 2008 crisis and we implemented, we went a little bit up on capital requirements in terms of effective capital requirements. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and the banking sector was doing great for the last uh, seven, eight years before the COVID crisis hit us. So that's helping us. Yeah. That's why that's one factor that gives me comfort that we are not going to see a repeat of that, at least when it comes to the banking sector. Okay. Okay. Uh, but, but your, your um, suggestion would be uh, at the very least, the financial sector has to, has to look at the capital structure in such a way that they will, they will get bad outcomes. Absolutely. Than, you know what has been happening, right? Absolutely. And so going forward, in fact, keeping every penny, and that's why I don't like the idea that these guys, uh, uh, these banks are still paying dividends. Yeah. That to me is absolutely not a good idea. Yeah. You have to save every penny uh, in, in, inside the bank uh, because, uh, because you, you need them pretty soon. So part of what you asked me, how do you see uh, speculate? And, I, and thanks for that word, because it's a speculation. So I'll be, I can afford to be wrong there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so with that caveat, look, it will partly depend on, of course, the broad macroeconomic factor, which um, the vaccine, it's a medical problem. We have no idea, at least somebody like me does not have any idea on that side of the world. Yeah, yeah. So, so it, it partly will depend on that. But sticking to the financial sector. Yeah. Uh, the the way the financial sector will respond to this uh, uh, prolonged crisis or quick recovery will be a function of how much capital we have inside the sector. Mm-hmm. That's one, and uh, and at the same time, uh, how much is the 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 liquidity and 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 the funding constraints in the 
secondary market. But let me expand on that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, by which I mean that yes, we need all our banks to have enough capital, and things should be great there. But we also want the other intermediaries, like the uh, the, the the dealers and uh, the, the 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 money market mutual fund. Yeah. So, so and these are important intermediaries that uh, that in fact do all those repo contracts where you have the flow of money happening across the financial sector and then from there to the real economy. Right. And the reason I'm talking about that is a small disruption in that market can amplify and have large impact on the rest of the financial sector. Right, right. So yeah, that's a big learning from 2008 as well, right? It's all interconnected. Yeah. And so even if you keep 95% of the system uh, pretty well capitalized, if you have a problem with another 5%, it doesn't really matter because it's going to flow through the entire thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so our recovery path will depend on A, the yeah. capital level that we have in our traditional banks and uh, banking sector, and B, how well lubricated we have, how much liquidity we keep in the secondary market so that there's no stress on money market mutual funds, no stress on primary dealers and so on. Right, right. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, it'll be... Uh... Hold on to your seats. It'll be an interesting ride. <laughs> that, that's yeah. my that's my speculation. Yeah, you uh, can go on with that, and that's <laughs> always going to be the case. Yes. <laughs> uh, so this has been great, Amitarsh, and uh, thanks so much uh, for spending time with me. And uh, good luck with all your research at Michigan. Thanks a lot for having me here, Gil, and uh, I enjoyed our conversation. Good luck with this. Thank you. Bye. Bye.